Australia, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroney. Welcome, everybody. This is our first podcast, and I'm joined with Karen Simmons from the Institute of Public Accountants. Karen has been the general manager of the IPA for six and a half years. Prior to that was the membership development and growth executive for approximately 12 months. Tell us a bit about yourself, Karen. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I started working back when I was about 19. I've worked throughout my life in different roles and different places and have just continued on throughout the time. I now am a single mum who has worked in government business, owned my own business, and now at the IPA, which is, yeah, a great place to work. Beautiful. Before we get right into it, I just want to make the statement of this is just a personal discussion between myself and Karen, and anything that is said is just our personal opinions on everything. It doesn't represent the brands we're associated with, i.e. the Institute of Public Accountants or Maroney and Associates. Disclaimer aside, let's jump into it. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) So where did you start out your career? I actually started at Bankwest back when I was 18. I started as a junior teller earning about $20,000 a year. Rolling in the money back then. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I thought I was rich at the time. (laughs) Started there and stayed within the bank for a while and kept taking new opportunities as they came up and ended up in their IT division. Oh, okay. So what drew you to the bank or was it just a job that appeared and you thought, yeah, that'd be a bit of fun or did you always want to sort of go into business? I never knew what I wanted, much to the disappointment of my parents and being the youngest child, my sisters always knew exactly what they wanted, where they were going and what they were doing. I tended to be the one that sort of floated around going, ah, didn't go to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. My dad had been in the bank for many, many years. My mum been a bookkeeper. So it was more just a stepping stone to start working and getting out there. And then, yeah, sort of developed things as I started learning more. How long were you in the teller side of things before you went to IT? Uh, Two years. So I started as a teller, then went to being the commercial teller. Mm -hmm. And then teller one, who sort of like orders the money into the branches. And then about two years after that, I moved into an admin role in IT development. So with the IT side of things, I assume that's like the bank's IT and their systems? Yeah. So it was developing a lot of the way they do for Bankwest. It was the Bankwest online banking. So this was back in 2000s. It was developing their website, the platform that they do their lending on, all sorts of things like that. So I was predominantly in administration. I did do a very short stint in testing, so testing software, at which point I learned that I'm much more a people person and (laughs) that testing is a unique skill set that is very specialised to certain people. Yeah, I'm sure the IT guys were interesting. Nothing against IT guys, but yes, it takes a certain breed. It does. It's also where I might have developed my coffee addiction from. <laughs> well, good call. And then you ended up in accounting, so we're all coffee addicted. So it Absolutely. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you in IT side of things? Again, two years. So I was at the bank for about four years in total. And then the IT department went through, I think, about three restructures in about a year. So in that time, 
by the time I left, I was a PA, but left in one of those restructures to move on. Where'd you go after that? From there, I started doing temp work. So I stepped out of the bank and stepped into another PA role at Department of Premier and Cabinet. So Mm -hmm. I was the PA for the Director of the State Sustainability Policy Unit, Professor Peter Newman. That's a mouthful there. It is, but really interesting. So it was as they were writing the State Sustainability Policy, you know, learnt so much about how you can't have just economic policy or you can't just have environmental policy or social policy. Like unless you have all three of them together, it's just not sustainable and how you really do need to look at that to be able to do anything really going forward. And then just putting that into practical sense, like as we start developing further and further out into the Perth further regions, it's not only about the houses out there, it's then we've got to start building the infrastructure and the people's ability to get to work. So then there's economic issues out there. There's no schools out there. So it's, yeah, it was really fascinating and something I really enjoyed doing. It's funny because you think, oh yeah, like we're building a new estate or whatever, but yeah, you often don't think of the the logistics behind it as Mm. well. You know, how if they all work for argument's sake in Perth and it's out in the hills, how are they getting there? Absolutely. And, you know, having schools for kids and even I would assume just normal infrastructure, you know, water and electricity and that'd be a mammoth undertaking to just create an area. One of the most interesting facts I found out in that time was that well, and again, this is going back 20 years, that the size of the Perth metropolitan region was actually the same size as the London metropolitan region. Really? Yeah. And so then you look at the population differences between the two cities and then also the infrastructure, like the tube system and everything that London has, yeah, just how different they are. And so that's a lot of our reliance on cars here in Perth, the need for the quarter acre block needing to do infill, medium housing, density, things like that. So, yeah. For those listening that don't know, Perth's got approximately one million, if that. For I thought a- we were at two. Okay, two million people. <laughs> and I'm not sure what London is, but I'm sure it's a hell of a lot bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 2.14 million. There you go. Ah, beautiful. So it's great when... Benefits of Google. So <laughs> <laughs> 2.14 and I'll assume London would be 20-odd or 15 to 20? Nine. Nine, okay. 9.3. That's smaller than I thought. Still four, almost five times (laughs) the size, but it's still smaller than I thought. (laughs) So, yeah, like in Western Australia, we've had some big expansions more recently, big train line linking the south side of things to the north and that side of things. But we definitely like the infrastructure that somewhere like London does or yeah, any of those big populated sort of places. In your experience there, what was it like? It was very interesting. So when you get letters from, so I was taking, doing a lot of the administration of people putting in their submissions for the strategy and then having to respond to people, basically just typing up the responses, but it's all like communications from the Premier and those very specific ways you could address them down to the exact font of the style guide. You know, it was... So you can't you know, be like, hey, Barry, I want this. No, not so much. (laughs) Yeah, most of it was when I was doing that. So Professor Newman would do a lot of presenting for people. So I'd do up his PowerPoints and things like that. So that was really fascinating to see really what he was going out and telling people. And I've forgotten a lot of the facts now, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's all good. That's all good. It was a little while ago. How long were you working there? About nine months. So it started off as a two-week temp gig and ended up being nine months. 
well, that's good. Yeah. They, they couldn't get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they tried. <laughs> <laughs> so where'd you go after that? It was a, another temping job after that where they couldn't get rid of me. So I went to the Swan River Trust on a two-week administration temporal. I always get the amount of time wrong, but I think it was about two, three years that I was there in the end. <laughs> I really couldn't get rid of you. <laughs> no. So I ended up going into a role, the communication officer for events. That was my first event role that I did and really enjoyed it and creating a lot of publications, getting out there with the community. I used to organize a lot of education. So we had corporate care days. So organizations, so say we would be in touch with Meridian Associates and you would organize a day for your staff to go out on the river and do something to facilitate the health of the river and learn about the different things that are affecting the river. So it may be picking up rubbish, doing some weeding, planting sedges, things like that. And we'd sort of tell you about the different things that were impacting the river, going to like the Royal Show, different community, but there was like the Autumn River Festival back then, did the stand for the opening of the convention centre. So all the government agencies were there. So we did the Swan River Trust stand there. So yeah. Beautiful. So the Swan River Trust essentially is to maintain the Swan River itself and keep it in good health and et cetera. Yep. So it looks after the health of the Swan and Canning Rivers. And so when I was there was during the 150-year anniversary of the Swan River Colony. Okay. And we're actually, they went through and they named like a, quite a few different iconic things of Perth or Western Australia. And the Swan River was the first one that they named. So. Ah. Beautiful. Mm. And for those that don't know Perth, Perth sits on the Swan River, just to put context of where the Swan <laughs> River is. <laughs> you organise the events and corporate days and, and that side of things. Yep. I've been thinking that something like that would be good from a, I suppose, from our business point of view to, to give back and that sort of thing. So it is good to know that charities, I presume they would be a charity or a not-for-profit. Uh, government agency. Government agency. There you go. Do sort of do that sort of thing. So that's handy. Yeah. So I suppose now that you've, you've got your, your entertainment event side of things, where'd you go after that? From there, the next major job was Securities Institute of Australia. So that was a membership association and they did education for financial planners, stockbrokers. So it was a graduate diploma in applied finance and investment, which was sort of the qualification to have if you wanted to be in finance in Australia. Not long after I started there, they merged with the Australasian Institute of Banking and Finance, and that's when we became Finzia. I was there for about three, four years. By the time I left, we'd actually sold the education arm and become Capcom. What's your experience there? I mean, stockbrokers, financial <laughs> planners, nothing against them, but they're different. <laughs> they're not that different to accountants, though. So well, That's um, the in of itself. I found it really interesting. So my role there initially was in client relations. So I used to go out to university fairs and talk to people about doing study and doing the graduate diploma or what have you. It was around about the time where what's now the FOFA laws, what was back then policy statement PS146, the ability that you... You needed to have certain education requirements before you could get licensed to provide advice in different areas in finance. So it was a lot of going through that and helping people choose the education that they needed to do to make sure that they met the education requirements for what they wanted to do in their careers. The educational component, did they have to do a mentoring component or anything or was it just purely educational? It was just purely educational back then. So there was other requirements within the license. So this was just the educational requirements. Yep. They've definitely 
increased the requirements since then. Yeah, 100%. Spoke to a few people and correct me if I'm wrong, they've decided to change it and they have to have a degree. Yeah. So Phasia has come in recently and that's brought in some even more, even stricter requirements if you're going to be providing advice. So yeah, there's degree, postgraduate, ethics, like all these additional things that you need to do. Yeah, which I mean, I'm not opposed to. As accountants, we get the degree, we do the postgraduate, we do all that side of things so we can give tax advice. You know, if you're advising people where to put their money and all the rest, probably get some level more than a six months sort of training. <laughs> so it is one of those things that I've heard the other side as well. Like I know a few financial planners locally and they're kind of you know, 50, 60, been in the industry for ages and don't want to go to a degree and they're having issues with it. So they've just decided to sell up. That tends to be the issues with a lot of these new processes like it's great for new people coming in to make sure that they have the education behind them Mm. and the standards behind them but it was a different world 40 years ago you know you could get it we did lectures and had a lot of dealings with practitioners in the finance profession and there was people who started as the mailboy and Mm. worked their way up and then they've done things like the graduate diploma of applied finance investment and they've got the qualifications and they're amazing at what they've done But they didn't necessarily have that degree. And I don't think the degree necessarily says, yes, you can do this or not. If you've got 20 years experience doing it, that's going to count more than a piece of paper that says, yeah, you did the degree. I'm not a financial planner, obviously, so I don't know how it all works, whether there's grandfathering things, but... I'm not sure at the moment, but yeah. It does seem like something that there should be. I mean, even because similar thing with accountants when the tax agent license came out, you know, there was people that prior you know, probably didn't meet the requirements and then had all those issues. But I suppose that's also where they have a good turnover. Well, not good turnover, but the people that were kind of teetering on looking at getting out anyway go, you know what, I can't be bothered. I don't want to go back to study. I'm going to sell up. And then the next people go in, yep, sweet, I can buy it and off we go. So, yeah, look, it, it is interesting how it all works. But, yeah, it's definitely hard and I do feel for those that have been in the industry for decades and they didn't have an intention to get out and it's not worth them to continue. Mm-hmm. I do feel for that. So I suppose with that, Finzia, what else was sort of your experience there? So I was there, so not only looking after the education side of things, I used to organise all the lectures. So we'd get practitioners to come in and present basically a module within the subject. So I used to organise all of those. So it was a lot of networking with different people throughout the finance industry, talking to practitioners, talking to the students, and very much not only selling the course or selling membership, but making sure that you were matching the person with exactly what they wanted, not just making your numbers sort of thing. So, yeah. And I do think a little side note on that one. I do think the IPA is really good with that. I know we're not talking about the IPA, but from an (laughs) accounting point of view, you know, they don't just sell you stuff they help you out and actively engage and you know yeah that's one of the things I'm actually really passionate about is there's no point selling someone something that they don't want or doesn't suit them because all that's going to happen is you're going to get their money once and then they won't return you won't get any return business from them you'll leave a bad taste in their mouth and then they either won't recommend you to their contacts or even worse they'll turn around and say don't go there Whereas if you actually sit down, help someone and either find a way to make your product 
suit their needs and meet their needs or help them find what will. You may not get the sale then and there. It may not be a case of that you were the right fit for them, but they'll remember the fact that you helped them. And so then they'll either recommend you or later on in life when your product does suit what they're after, then they'll come back to you because you left that good feeling about it. Yeah. And I mean, from say my business point of view, so I run an accounting firm, similar thing. It's not just selling the tax return and that side of things. It's the experience of it, yeah. which I suppose is very similar with the IPA, like you said. And I've said at many accounting conferences and stuff is we all work under the same law. So in theory, you can come to me or you can go to Joe Blow down the road and you should get the same tax amount, yeah. give or take. So what sets you apart? You've got to have that personability, that rapport. You've got to be able to have somebody trust you. We've kind of, like obviously we bill and fee and stuff, but go off of the belief of, you know, this is what we're doing price-wise and stuff. Help the client first and then the money will come after. Even for the sake of, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about this. They came in to do a tax return. They had literally nothing in their tax return. They made $10,000 no tax, no nothing. You know, we had a chat and went through it and I said, you know, look, if you want to do I can do it. That's no worries. But obviously I'll charge you if I do. But, you know, in your situation, my bill's going to be bigger than your refund's going to be anyway. I would say, look, just go do it on MyGov or eTax or whatever. Get it that way. So it comes to the same outcome. Yeah, I didn't make the 180 bucks on that tax return. But I've just essentially gone... I'm not here to rip you off. You know, you can just do it yourself. If you want me to do it, yeah, sweet, you know, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you that option. I've found in the past as a consequence of doing stuff like that or, you know, just helping people, especially in their times of need. I do a lot of pro bono stuff. It just comes back tenfold. Yes, obviously it's for business ultimately to get the money, but just doing these things, I think it's just our job as a firm, as accountants to support it. You know, like Mm -hmm. a client, unfortunately, their father, Killed himself. He had assets and all this sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a rough time. They're grieving as well. So it was in our quieter time as well, which does help. So I probably did three hours or so, just pro bono stuff, sitting with them, helping them, signing stuff, mm-hmm. certifying this is a true and correct copy and all that sort of stuff. Pro bono, you know, they were clients anyway, just to help support them. It's not costing me anything except for time and you know, it's quite a time, so I had the time. And then from that, you know, they sing my praises and I've got at least 10 clients from that. Not that that was the intent to do this so then they refer, but it's just a consequence. And I do love, like with the IPA, for example, that they kind of operate similar in the way of it's not pay your membership, catch you later. It's trying to support and all of that. And because you do provide that support and obviously the knowledge and all that side of things, you know, you're happy for the next year to pay your fees. You're not like, oh, is it worth it? I haven't spoke to them all year and the only time I actually get anything is a letter with a $1,500 bill or whatever. (laughs) And that's a big thing about us is that we want to make sure, especially here in WA, we do try to make it feel more of a family and a community than just an organisation. So, And um, I think the IPA is really good for that, um, in my experience, obviously. I can't sing the IPA's praises big enough, but it's really good having that support. Even having the other avenues within the IPA, and we'll get back to the work experience in a minute, but professional assist, for example. The Institute of Public Accountants, the IPA, 
have an agreement? Of, I don't know. Uh, it's sort of a partnership with yep. IFX. So IFX does legal sort of advice and we get four credits a year? Four free credits a year as members. You used one yesterday, Mitch. I did actually. I've used two this week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's great. So as a practitioner myself, you know, sometimes things you don't know or you go, I think this is the interpretation, but, you know, it could be out of the norm or whatever. You know, being able to just contact them and get a legal advice is amazing, even to the point which I'm sure they don't normally do. But one of the lawyers called me up the other day and we had a 40-minute discussion on the phone. Oh, that was um, good of him. It was. <laughs> I, hats off to him. I was very happy with that. But um, <laughs> I'm sure they don't normally do that. There's stuff like that, that the IPA themselves, they personally don't do it, but they've built the partnership with a company that will and that really supports us as members and practitioners. So, yeah, hats off to you on that one. Yeah, that's one of our really good services that we offer. So, yeah, Yeah, it's a fantastic offering to members. A hundred percent. And I'm always surprised with how, not how few, but I know a lot of people use it, but that it's not like everybody just uses it because even another one of it, but I was given advice on a sale of a license and there was all this complicated stuff and I pretty much worked out what it should be, but we're talking it was going to be a $6 million game. So if I'm wrong, that's a big fallout. So I went to professional assist, laid the entire scenario out, what my thoughts were, yada, yada, yada. And then they came back with the full actual legal advice, you know, different sections, all that jazz, which gave me the confidence to go, you know what, I was right, and then give that advice. And it also covers my ass as well, just in case something goes wrong. The fact that the advice quite often is in writing, so it means it's covered by your insurance is a huge help as well. Exactly. And in that situation, that was really why was, yeah, I think this is how it works, but the fallout is large, you know, like it Mm -hmm. could be a $2 million tax issue. So, you know, I want to get a third party that is experienced to get the advice and also cover for insurance purposes. And yeah, so I've used it for that side of things as well to cover there and also just if I'm not 100% sure how it works for that side. And I'd recommend all members, if you do have anything like that, to utilise it, especially because mm. we get the four credits a year. So why not? Yeah. And some of the advisors on there are like partners at major law firms. One of them's Terry Budge, who was actually the managing director of Bankwest when I started there. Oh, really? <laughs> he was, yes. He actually gave me tying into what you were saying before. So he came to our branch when I first started. And he said basically that Bankwest, what they offer is the same as what ANZ across the hall offer or NAB or Commonwealth Bank or whatever it may be. And so what differentiates us is the service that we offer. Yes. And that's something that's always stuck with me. So yeah, he's one of the advisors on there as well, which I found quite interesting when I found him on there. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Mitch Maroney Show. Stay tuned for more.